Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get started in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm so excited about this. It is a beautiful, long stretch of Jesus' teaching. No, no simple anecdotes or episodes. It is Jesus standing in front of his followers and really teaching. It's a, it's a whole treatise on where life is found, really. And when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, what I want you to consider is that this is Jesus' kingdom of God talk. Amen. It's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. And this is him, Jesus, opening up the kingdom to you and I. Where is life found? It's in the kingdom. Who is in the kingdom? What is life like once we get there? Jesus came to bring the good news, and the good news is that the kingdom is here. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing this new kingdom. So I want to explain the kingdom in brief before we get into the sermon itself. God is over everything. So we could acknowledge if God is the creator who spoke this world into being, then God is over everything. That said, there are inhabitants of the kingdom of God that have life that others do not. So let's go to Mark, not the Sermon on the Mount, but Mark in chapter 9. Jesus says this, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And see what he says, it is better for you to enter, what's that word? Life. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Let's do a little explaining on what this means. Better to enter into life. Well, someone's already living. If they're sinning and cutting their hand off, they're already alive. So what could he mean? It's better to enter life maimed than to go to hell with two hands. And so he's, Jesus is creating this picture that there is a place where there is life and there's a place where you experience death. And the life happens only in the kingdom. This is an important piece. He says, better than uh, to enter life maybe than to go into hell. The word for hell there is geben hinnom. Geben hinnom. And this is, uh, there was, let's show, go ahead, Duane, and put the picture up of Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem back in the day. And so what I want you to see, I'm going to walk over to the map because it's easier that way. Um, it's like, I mean, the pool is out of the water. <laughs> All right. So if you see up the, up the right side, the right side of Jerusalem here, this is old Jerusalem. This is the Kedron Valley. Okay. The Kedron Valley is what Jesus crossed on his way in to be crucified. On the left side, this is the Hinnom Valley. And down the middle, you can't really tell on this map, but there's a central valley, but there's three valleys. So, um, on the left one, that left one there is the Hinnom Valley. And I need everybody to do this for me. Can you do this? Put your hand up like this. Some of you, yeah, the giggling comes from something. What do you associate this as? Spock from Star Trek. Okay. Here's what I want you to see. This is the picture. If you hold it up to the map, this is the picture of old Jerusalem. Okay. Old Jerusalem looks like your hand this way. And in between these two, in this kind of V right here, you'll see the temple. See the temple of the big white on the right there? Okay, so you have the Kidron Valley, the Central Valley, and the Hinnom Valley. So anytime you think of old Jerusalem, you can put up your um, live long and prosper hand and you can uh, imagine it that way. So here's the thing. This is a little side story. This is free. This is bonus. Do you know how this came to be in Star Trek? Leonard Nimoy is a Jew. Leonard Nimoy was talking to the directors about needing to have some sort of greeting for other, what was he? He's a 
I don't know, some Vulcans, Vulcans. I was going to say Klingon, then I'd have it all mixed up, and then Gandalf's involved, and Slytherin, and it's, it's a thing. So, Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw, Ravenclaw, I got it right. Raven, Star Trek Ravenclaw. So, he's talking to the directors about needing a greeting that's, that's customized for Vulcans, and they said, well, do, pick something. And as a Jew, he thought it would be real cute to do this, because there are times in a Jewish a rabbinical service where this is held up as a blessing over the people. Because it's the picture not only of the city of Jerusalem and the valleys that go around it, but it also represents the Hebrew letter sheen. It looks like a W in our language, but sheen is the Hebrew letter that is represented by this shape. And if you put the letter sheen on top of the city of Jerusalem, it fits those three valleys perfectly. Sheen is the first letter in the word for El Shaddai, the Almighty, or for Shalom, which means perfect peace and wholeness. And so what we're going to see is, is if you look at the Hinnom Valley at the bottom of Jerusalem there, that's where all of the trash was thrown. That's where the refuse was thrown. That's where if you had an animal that died, you threw it. Uh, the sewerage went there. So the, the bottom part, your thumb, if you're doing your map on your hand, the thumb part is where all of the refuse went and was burned. And what, ba- what valley is that? What is it called? Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley, or Geben Hinnom or Gehenna. And so when, when it says in Mark that it's better for you to enter into life with two hands than to enter into Gehenna, translated hell, what he's saying is it's better for you to have life in that kingdom. It's a picture of a kingdom that's, that's concentrated in one place and to be outside of the kingdom, in this sense, outside the walls of the, the, the city, but outside of the kingdom means you're outside of life. And you're with the, these trash fires that burn incessantly, and you're with this, this refuse that's not fit for life. And so the idea that Jesus is trying to get across when he talks about life or hell or Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, he's talking about the difference between life that is flourishing and real and pure and joyful and death that comes from being outside of the perimeter of that life, okay? So here's the picture I want to give you. This is from one of the books I've been using to study through this. There's a figure. This is essentially what we're talking about with kingdom. So the universal kingdom of God now mediated through Christ is everything, okay? That's, that outside circle represents all that you can see, touch, feel here. Within that, there is another kingdom, right? There, the kingdom of God, that the aspect of the universal kingdom under which there is life. So everybody's under God's universal reign, but only some of the people within that have chosen life, are in the kingdom of heaven. Some of us, maybe represented in baptism, we're living in the outside circle, maybe even recognizing there is a God, but there's a choice to be made to enter into kingdom heaven, kingdom life. And in kingdom life, in that striped area in the middle, that's where true life is found. And so the entirety of this sermon is about getting life into us and getting us into life. Better to cut your hand off and enter life than have two hands and be in the outer darkness. That's the picture we're aiming for. So we've just saw baptism. We've seen people joining Jesus in death and burial and in resurrection. We're seeing life on every turn. And so on that note, let me then take a little twist and let's see what Tim Keller says about this. Because in Tim Keller setting up the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he said. You never see Jesus saying to somebody, receive me as your personal Lord and Savior. You only see him saying, repent and enter the kingdom. This is important for us because in our modern Western Christianity, we want to make it individual. We want to have people do one thing. You say the magic prayer and then you're in. I'm not saying that praying and submitting your life to Christ is not right. That's great. 
But Jesus taught to enter into the larger kingdom. Part of following Jesus was admitting that there's something bigger going on. So Jesus is saying, turn from the ways of the world that lead you to death and enter the kingdom that brings life. And the implication of entering in the kingdom is that Jesus is your Lord and he is your Savior, that he is your King. It seems that Jesus is uh, as, if not more, interested in getting the kingdom into you as he is in getting you into the kingdom. This is important for us as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus seems to be as interested in getting the kingdom into you as he is in getting you into the kingdom. So many of us say the words and we, we enter in in our way, but we never really have a change internally. We never really have that transformation. We never really let it take hold. We want to enter into the gates and explore the life held within, but we don't want to let that life enter into us because it'll change our priorities. It'll change our agenda. It'll change the way we live. And that's what this teaching is all about. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. John Stott, theologian, says this, the Sermon on the Mount is to be read and understood in that kingdom context. It describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. This is important because a rule implies a ruler. And again, it's a kingdom life. These are not ideas for good behavior. These are not esoteric thinkings or proverbs. This is not a new philosophy to be held for Christianity. This is what it looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is what it looks like when people live under the rule of a new king in a kingdom. He sets up a countercultural existence. Stop goes on. He says, the followers, the followers of Jesus are Covenant Kids 148. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. The followers of Jesus are to be different. Okay, this is you. Different from both the compromised church and the secular world. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. This is life in the kingdom of fully human life lived out under God's rule. So the followers of Jesus, if we read the words of Jesus, if we watch the life of Jesus, we are to be different. Then what? Different than both the secular world, the thing that's easy to see you're supposed to be different than. When it's obvious, I don't know if that's a real Christian or not. That's, that's easy. That's not, you don't get awards for being different than the secular world. Also, the compromised church. This is important because we have a lot of uh, compromised church in our midst. I'm not talking about the church down the street is compromised. I'm not saying that. I'm saying us, the body of Christ, many of us have compromised what Jesus has called us into doing and being. And we've sort of diluted it and we're delusional. And we think if I just do these three things, I can do whatever I want in these other things. The compromised church can be seen everywhere. We substitute causes for Christ and we chase celebrity of self over glory of God. So if you're going, what does it look like to see the compromised church? When you, when you substitute causes for Christ or you separate um, and substitute your glory for God's glory, that's compromise. So the Sermon on the Mount is something brand new in history. Wildly different and radical, and beautiful. While it's probably the best-known teaching of Jesus, it might be his least understood, and I would argue that it's definitely his least obeyed. So we're going to dig deep. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's going to take us a while. So if you're looking in your Bible going, this is a lot to get through. It is. 
We're not going to rush. We're going to take our time. If we're going to enter into the kingdom in the way God has asked us to enter into the kingdom, we're going to do it slowly and thoughtfully. We're going we're to hold up our sheen, live long and prosper signs, and we're going to get a new perspective on this, that, and the other. We're going to take our time, which means it's going to be a while. So we're not going to go straight through. This is not the next 73 weeks of your life. We'll take breaks for Christmas and series in between. Probably next fall we'll finish this, but we'll split it up as we go. What we're going to do today is get after it. So we have to start somewhere. Do we start in Matthew chapter 5 where uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts? Or as you read your Bible, how would you start? Okay, so this is also free. If you're reading your Bible and you want to start reading in Matthew chapter 5 and see what does the Sermon on the Mount say, what you should do is flip back one page and start earlier than that. Because you need to know the context. How did we get here? What is happening? You need to know the context. So you flip backwards and you have to look at the previous chapters. And what you need to understand is the Bible is not a book of disjointed wisdom. Your Bible is not a book of stories. It's a, it's a joined together history with threads running through it. These are real events that really happened and they have a, a, a narrative theme and thread running through them. So to just do the thing where you kind of, I'll read that today. Uh-oh, I'm in like the appendix part where it just has in words. I'll just read that, whatever. It's the same to me. When we read that way, that's the same as just picking a verse and reading it and going, well, that seems like wisdom to me. And that's, we get ourselves in big trouble because we'll read something and be like, well, it does say this. And you're like, what does it say before and after? Don't know, never read it, but it did say this. What we need to do is, is figure out the context. And so as I'm challenging you to read Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, kind of like as often as you can for the next season, we have to start in chapter four. Here's what you need to know. Jesus has just been tested in the desert by the devil. And then his cousin John has been arrested. And then he famously calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. He calls them to be fishers of men. And they were fishermen. And he says, no, no, fishers of men. And then he says it there in Matthew 4, 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's a fourth century Italian theologian who pointed out that the Greek word there in this sentence means to catch for life. Fishers is to catch them for life. Now you're like, what are we doing? Now we're talking about Greek words and you got me making Spock hands and this is getting a little bit too academic. Okay, here's why it matters. The gospel is what? The coming of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus inaugurates. It's about the good news and the good news is what? That there is life to be had. It's all about life, right? So it's about finding life and cultivating life and sharing life. And so Cornelius, who was a Flemish Jesuit priest, who I know he's a lot of your favorite Jesuit priests from the 16th century. Cornelius is a mine too. And here's what he says. Taking the idea that it's to catch fish alive, fishermen take fishes for death. They may kill them. But thou, O Peter, shalt catch men unto life that they may begin a new life and live unto God in holiness. So Cornelius has rewritten, he's retranslated, I will make you fishers of men based on this knowledge that it isn't just about you were a fisher of men, or you were a fisher of fish, now you're a fisher of men. He goes, if when you pull out all that there is in the text, this is actually what it says. It's saying, I'm offering you an entrance into the new kingdom, the kingdom of life, not the place where you go out to do your work that you may create death to supply, but you might go out in your world and you will create life that will be supplied. Everything is about life. Everything is cultivating life. All of the things leading up to chapter five are about Jesus inaugurating a life cultivating, life-giving, life-transforming kingdom. So this is where we sit. From there, 
it gets really interesting. So he's reimagined fishing. He's reimagining a kingdom. So what happens with these new fishers of men? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25 says, From there he went all over Galilee, he being Jesus. He used synagogues for meeting places and taught people the truth of God. God's kingdom was his theme. What was his theme? I can't hear you. What is his theme? God's kingdom was his theme as he went about teaching. And what happened as his theme was God's kingdom? The beginning right now, that beginning right now, they were under God's government, a good government. He healed people of their diseases, of the bad effects of their bad lives. Word got around the entire Roman province of Syria. People brought anyone with a sickness, whether mental, emotional, or physical. Jesus healed them one and all. More and more people came. The momentum was gathering. And besides those from Galilee, crowds came from the 10 towns across the lake, others from Jerusalem and Judea, still others from across the Jordan. Jesus, having called these fishers of men into fishing for life, then goes about inaugurating the kingdom of heaven by doing what? By bringing fresh life. People are being healed. The crowds are growing. Your cousin has a physical disability. Jesus prays and he's healed. Your mother is struck with a life-threatening illness. Jesus touches her. She's cured. Your child is born deaf and blind. Jesus says a word and they see and hear. This is what's happening. And we read it sometimes like it's some ancient story or a, a nice little biblical narrative that that may or may not be true. I don't know. This is a historical account of the coming of a new kingdom. And Jesus is giving life and he's giving little slivers of life. People are taking, whoa, I'm healed. Whoa, I can see. Whoa. And all over the place, people are getting just a sliver of a reflection of a picture of the fullness he's attempting to bring. Imagine our world, if on the street, this was happening in our midst. Imagine somebody walking through the frozen swamp of Bowling Green, and this is what they're doing. Someone's in a wheelchair rolling down Wooster, and he touches them, and they get up, and they knock their wheelchair over and they walk. People would look, whoa, is that a trick? And then he walks across the street and he's walking up Maine somewhere and he, he sees somebody with a cane and they're blind and they're making their way and he holds them by the shoulder and he takes away their cane and he touches their eyes and they see and they begin to walk away. And then he, he, he goes into the neighborhoods and he, he, finds, he finds brokenness and he heals it. He finds illness and he makes it better. He, he finds all, one after another, all throughout these towns, it says he's changing lives, but he's doing it in these physical ways. This sickness is being healed and mental anguish is being cured and depression is being made. All the things are being made right. What would happen in our town? How long would it take? Somebody can sneeze in this town and I know it in 20 minutes. Oh, did you hear that? We're sneezing. Didn't even cover his mouth. It's embarrassing. And I'm like, how do we, you know, people said a small town, things travel fast. Everybody knows everything about everything. The pastoral grapevine is about this long. You sneeze, I hear about it. I get a text. Hey, you know they sneezed. Okay. Somebody is healing. People are being transformed physically. People who are, who are on their deathbed get up and do a jig and they're thrilled and they're dancing and we're having a party. You think that's not going to get out? This is the context for this kingdom of life talk as Jesus is going around saying, life, life, life. And the crowds begin to gather. People are obsessed. What are people obsessed about right now in your world? There is an answer. It's Taylor Swift. Okay. <laughs> it's all anybody can think about. It's all anybody can talk about. 
I'm not going to point out who did it, but somebody about the third row over here just gave me a fist pump. Hey, God, T. Swift stuff happening around here. I mean, she doesn't wear enough clothes. We can talk about that later. Catchy songs, great songwriter, incredible marketer, most competitive person on the planet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Puts on a great show from what I've heard. So how many people has she healed their blindness? How many people walk in and sit in the handicap section of the arena and they end up in the front row dancing? Like, I'm not mocking her. I'm saying, this is the thing. We are nuts about this. Our society has gone bananas. And this is new for us because it's not new. Michael Jackson did in the 80s and the Beatles. This has happened before, but it hasn't happened in 30 years where the whole culture seems to be vaguely aware of this person and part of the culture is obsessed with this person. This person has not done one miracle yet unless making a billion dollars from singing and dancing is a miracle. Might be. No miracles, crazy obsession. Jesus is walking through streets smaller than ours so the word travels fast and it's just miracle, 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 life, life, life. People are talking, crowds are gathering, a crowd is forming. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the first question we have to ask, we stop there. You're one verse in. We're never going to get through this, people. (laughs) First question we have to ask, is he fleeing? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. Why did he go up on a mountain? Why, he saw crowds and he responded to the crowds. What is he doing? Is he giving them space? Who's gathering? Is it the disciples? The, the called gathered 12? Is it different group? Is it more people? What can we know? Great question. The Bible isn't totally clear. The disciples here would be anyone who's following him at the time. So probably the 12 who he's called, but probably more. The current group of students, anybody following at the time is with him. So yes, probably many more than 12. What we need to do is, is we won't show you today because we'll get there in 2026, but in chapter (laughs) 7, in chapter 7, it says, and the crowds heard what he said and were astonished. And there is a word there. The implication there is this isn't 12 plus 3 or 4. This isn't Jesus in an intimate teaching. This is the crowds. This is the stadium full. This is the crowds heard the things he taught and were astonished at the authority of his teaching. So here's what we can imply from that. There's, there's probably a crowd. You pick the number that seems right to you. But what we know is a crowd draws a crowd. You see people lined up for something you often go line up for. You don't even know what you're lining up for. Something, they're giving away free t-shirts. So maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, but maybe those dozens become hundreds or maybe the hundreds become thousands. The reason we did the series graphic the way we did, we'll put that back on the screen for you. So I wanted to give you a picture. Um, Adam is our incredible uh, graphic artist that does this for us. It's amazing. And I tried to give him a vague picture of what I was looking for, and he sent me this back, and I was like, that's better than in my imagination. So if you imagine the Sea of Galilee, which is just a really big lake, and the hills that rise around it, the sea is in a bowl, the lake is in a bowl, Jesus is healing people on the lake, right? He's, he's talking to fishermen, and he's walking around these lakeside towns, and then eventually he makes his way up away from the lake up onto a hillside, so that he might teach this message on the kingdom. So this picture is something we're going to keep coming back to. We're not going to show it a lot, but I want this burned in your imagination as you consider what he's saying in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is this is the picture of maybe something like where Jesus was. 
he goes into something that we now know as the Beatitudes. So maybe your homework this week is you're going to read the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through uh, verse 11. So what we're going to do today is set the stage. We're going to come back next week and start unpacking. So what I want you to do is with this picture here in your mind, maybe you close your eyes and you just listen, because Jesus comes out on a hill like this and he begins to speak. So we're not going to put it on the screen. We're going to leave this up and you get to hear it the way maybe he said it. The Bible says he opened his mouth and taught them and he said this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What the Beatitudes are not, my friends, is a recipe for blessedness. We're not going to leave here one day and all go chase poverty so as to be blessed. It's not a checklist for acceptance. It's not a, some state of a spiritual being to be reached. We consider the context again. He's healing and crowds are growing. And this is not a sermon of esoteric ideas. This is not a philosophy we need to parse. It's grounded in ordinary things. Jesus is sitting on grass and dirt with followers who are still wet from coming out of fishing. They bring their baskets they bring their satchels, they bring their children who are crying, and they're sitting in a place a lot like this, but a lot less comfortable than this. And Jesus uses names and circumstances and people and families and hurts, real things. So Dallas Willard explains it like this. When he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, Dallas Willard says, they are explanations, the Beatitudes, are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. If you follow me. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, in Jesus, the rule of God from the heavens is truly available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. This is the most hopeful thing we can possibly get into is that no matter where you find yourself, you will find yourself in these pages. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is available to you. It is open to you that life is on offer. This is a roll call of the kingdom of heaven as it lands on the people of earth. It is a description of a collision so beautiful that we cannot fathom it, where heaven is invading. It's not just about getting us into heaven. It's about getting heaven into us. The upside-down kingdom is coming in backwards fashion, and the world would never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are um, just so grateful for today, for a picture of your heavenly uh, transformation in our midst. Lord, for baptisms, what they represent about who we are in you, for your word, 
drawing us out of our ordinary lives into the extraordinary kingdom life that you offer. Father, my prayer for us as we, as we wade into these stories, as we listen to this teaching, as we hear from Jesus over the weeks to come, Father, that it would not be uh, simply words to read or, or scripture to study, but God, it would be life unto us. God, we hunger for real life. We thirst for something true. That in all the world has to offer and all the heartbreak and the pain and the grief and the guilt that comes with it. God, we know there is something better and that is in you. So Father, invite us into your presence in these days. Invite us into your kingdom in these days. Lord, invite us into your glory and your salvation. Get heaven into us. Dig in deeply into our hearts and souls that we might be fertile ground for your kingdom to sprout forth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this community as we gather to sing of your praises. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.